Well, welcome back to the Zeitcast, everybody. You know, I was thinking on my way over here today, what would my life even look like now? What would my world look like without Brian Zond in it? Because here's the thing. Um, There are many times on this weird little journey I've been on where I can feel a little lonely, feel a little misunderstood or whatever. If there's anybody out there that makes me feel sane and kind of makes me feel seen, then that's my friend, Pastor Brian Zahn. We've um, we've been on this journey, first kind of on parallel journeys, and then we kind of intersected, I guess, in real life around, what, was it 2011, 2012, somewhere uh, around? You know, time flies. I can't remember when. Um we met on Twitter. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. And and people noticed that we were saying similar things. Yes, yes. And connected us. We didn't know of one another. And then um, then you had me come out to your church in North yeah. Carolina and yeah. speak from Beauty Will Save the World. Yeah, and that that's, was 2012. That's what I remember. You did the Gospel in Chairs, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. That was so yeah, great. Yeah, so... It feels like I've known you all my life, but it that's feels that really way not for the me case. Too. Really yeah. And you know what, Brian, this is uh, such a compliment to me and also makes me feel again like, okay, uh, in, the, in the moments of self-doubt, maybe I'm doing something okay. I love how often it is that when I meet folks and they've connected with my work or a sermon or book or something or other, how often they will say, Brian's on and you, you know, like in the same breath. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. like that's like, I love that. And, um, and Brian, really, beyond being my friend, I mean, he really is. He's a poet. He'd never referred to himself this way, but he absolutely is a prophet. He's one of the uh, uh, the world's foremost experts on Bob Dylan, and he's written books. And I really, I don't just say this again because he's my friend. If you haven't read all of Brian's books, you really should read them all. Unconditional, Beauty Will Save the World, uh, Farewell to Mars, uh, Watered Wine, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. The other recently, not long ago, I actually said Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah. <laughs> it's Brian's book. It is not Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, <laughs> but Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Um, his new book, Postcards to Babylon, they're all wonderful. Did I say Watered Wine already? If not, I meant to. Um, I, I think your books are so great. Of course, I recommend them to everybody. And Brian, I'm just so thankful for your journey and for who you are, for what you're putting out there. I guess a good place, I kind of hate starting here in a way because, you know, I'm, um, I am a superhero person. I mean, I grew up with comic <laughs> books and all that. And one thing that can drive me a little crazy now, like, you know, when you're going to see a superhero movie that you've got to sit through a 40-minute origin story. So I don't want you to feel like you always have to tell your origin story. <laughs> but I know since this is a new podcast, yeah. and while I know a lot of folks who are listening you know, are very much aware of you and your journey, I'm sure we have some who are not, it, I thought maybe it would be at least a good jumping-off place to say a bit about your own water-to-wine yeah. journey. Yeah, I have to go back. Uh, I have to start off in high school, and I was the high school Led Zeppelin freak who who had an encounter with Jesus that was Damascus Road-like. I don't at all think that everybody needs to meet Jesus the way I did, where it was stunning and suddenly and knocked to the ground sort of thing, but that's what happened. And overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And it was news, you know, I mean, and it was... It created a stir in the high school. Everybody called me Fry. That was everybody knew me as Fry. That was my nickname. And um, 
you know, after about a month, people would just, everybody would come up to me and say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I would say, I know, crazy, isn't it? I can't believe it either, but it's happened. Mm -hmm. And I was, within a matter of months, was leading Bible studies at school. By the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs. Now, this is in the Jesus movement, you know. People need to know about the early 70s. This was 1975. Um, The Jesus movement, this kind of counterculture. It's hippies finding Jesus sort of thing. Um, So it had had a counterculture vibe. It was music-centric. And the center in our city was the catacombs. And it was this coffee house, which was mostly a music venue that met in the basement of a dive bar on 3rd Street. Uh, We called it the catacombs because it was subterranean and dark and all of that. But also, you know, we had this sense that somehow we were connected to early Christianity. We were Mm -hmm. radical. We had a propensity for communal life and all that sort of thing. That then turned into Word of Life Church mm. uh, about 17, 18, 19, 20, about five years later. Um, so I officially became the pastor and founding pastor of Word of Life Church when I was 22, but really I'd been leading this ministry and teaching at it and all of that for five years before. So I tell people I've been wow. a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Now, th- that, that's, not, that's not a pattern. That's not, I don't recommend yeah. that, but it's yeah. just what happened. I mean, it really yes. did happen. Yes. And uh, so Word of Life is this non-denominational church rooted in the Jesus movement. I don't even believe in non-denominational churches. Mm-hmm. My defense is it's what happened. It yeah. just happened. Yeah. And... Um, so we were a small church for our first seven years, officially, under 100. And then something happened in the early 90s, or beginning about 89, and we just exploded to several thousand. And mm. we, we'd, we'd sort of moved from Jesus movement to charismatic to word of faith. Mm. Um, and I really don't apologize for any of that. I mean, sure. there were times when that's where I was finding the life of God. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, but by the time I was 40, you know, when, uh, by the time I was 40, I was really uh, beginning to have a sense of unease, mm. and uh, everything was great. I mean, by the metrics that Americans like to measure success, everything was great. The church was big, we had a lot mm. of money, had a big campus, all of that. It's great, and yet it felt thin to me. It felt like, mm. yeah. I, I never had a crisis of faith regarding Jesus. I just mm-hmm. felt like the Jesus I knew deserved a better Christianity. Mm. And, and the Christianity I knew seemed insufficient. It seemed mm. weak. It seemed thin. And I didn't know what to do about it. I, um, and so I just had this instinct, okay, I need to go back. Mm. And so I started reading Church Fathers the canon of Western literature and philosophy, just by instinct. Hmm. Uh, I have no, I have, I'm, not, I'm a Jesus freak that accidentally started a church. Yeah. So I have no training. Again, I don't recommend this. Uh, but I, I didn't need to read Word of Faith charismatic books anymore. I knew what they all said. I'd, hmm. I'd read them all and knew all the authors, and I, I didn't. In fact, I wrote two books during that era that mm. I won't claim. I won't tell you what the names of them are. <laughs> I, if I could gather them all up and throw them in the sea, I would. 
But yeah, I don't claim them. People That's say, hilarious. how many books have you written? I say I've written seven. Actually, I've written eight because I have one coming out this fall. Um, but, um, but really, I've written, what, 10, I guess. But two of them I don't claim. <laughs> so funny. So, so, uh. so I'm, reading, I'm reading patristics. I'm reading, you know, just classic literature. And I'm reading um, uh, philosophy. And that kind of carried me along till I was 45. And then it all hit a crisis point. And I just knew. And I, so I began the first 22 days. of This is a crazy story. I don't recommend this. I, I don't ever do this, people. <laughs> but I did it. I hope to never do anything like this again. I don't think I could do it again. But I began the first 22 days of 2004 uh, doing nothing but praying, fasting, mm. preaching when I was supposed to, and sleeping at night. I literally did nothing else. Mm. And the not eating part was, was way hard. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I just water. I got down to 130 pounds. Wow. People were worried about me. They thought I was dying. Mm. And I thought I was dying, and I was dying. The whole first half of life was just mm. dying. Yeah. Uh, through a series of experiences. See, the thing was, Jonathan, I was embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I can see, mm. you know, I'm looking at Jonathan here on this little screen, and I, his books are too little for me to really tell what they are, but I can see that big, fat Hirawas reader. Yes, <laughs> I yes. see that one. Well, I, I wouldn't have known Hirawas from, you know, Mercedes-Benz. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I had no idea who these people... I was embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. Mm. I was reading Church Fathers, but I didn't have anything contemporary. Mm. And I prayed one day. I said, I said, God, show me what to read. I had that instinct. God, mm. show me what to read. And it really kind of a frustrated way. Five minutes later, my wife, Perry, walked in the room. She had no idea what I'd just prayed. She walks up to me, hands me a book, and says, Here, I think you should read this. <laughs> mm. And the book, it was uh, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Yes. I was on a plane somewhere the next day, flying somewhere. Mm. And so I took that with me and I opened it up. And within five pages, it was like, it was like you see on TV, these drug busts when they, when they smash through the door with those, you know, those hammers or whatever. Mm. It was like suddenly a door was burst open in my mind mm. and all kinds of new ways of thinking about the kingdom came flooding in. Mm. And one thing leads to another and very quickly. So I read all of Willard's, and then I, then I find N.T. Wright, and then I find mm-hmm. Harawas, and then I find Rene Girard, and then I find Brueggemann. And I went through a period of, from, let's say, about 2004 to maybe 2006 or seven, about a, really about a two- to three-year period where I look back on it, and I can't believe what I read, just mm-hmm. the sheer amount. I was reading mostly every night from six to midnight. Wow. And it was, it was a self imposition into a seminary that I had mm. missed mm. and never did it feel like work. Mm. It was like I struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. Wow. I mean, I, would, I was, you know, every night reading and I would just kept thinking, where have you been all of my life? Mm. This is what I've been looking for. Now, you know that that changes a preacher. Sure. You know, I mean, you can't go from, you know, what do you know? You know, well, I'm not going to name names, but you, 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 with this kind of charismatic word of faith crowd, and then you yes. start reading Hauerwas and Brueggemann and whoever else, that will change you. And it's going to change yeah. your preaching. Yeah. And I, I knew that, I remember the Sunday I stood up in the church and I said, um, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement mm. and we're moving on. 
Now, I did it with enough rhetorical skill in the midst of the sermon that people applauded. You know, mm. they, they were excited until I actually did it. Mm. <laughs> and then when I actually began to change the church, mm. uh, people began to leave. And when I pulled away from religious right, that yeah. was the big deal. When I began to critique war as being yeah. incompatible with following Christ, it was over that period of time that we lost a thousand people. Wow. And I'm in a city of 70,000, right? Mm. So I'm not in a mega city. I'm in a town. And if you lose 1,000 people in a town of 70,000, what does that mean? Yeah. It means when you go to the grocery store, you see them. Mm. And if you do it right, you can see them in all 10 aisles. And mm. every time it was, it was just it was painful. Mm. Um, that pain lingered. And you know me, Jonathan, because we've talked about this. You've seen you know, mm-hmm. how wounded Perry and I were. For, that pain lasted for 10 years. Yeah. It wasn't until, sincerely, when we walked the Camino in 2016, the Camino de wow. Santiago, a big 500-mile walk across Spain, that our souls were healed. And we're fine now. So I don't, no, nobody hear this as a sad tale. The interesting thing about that period of time, though, was it was there was two deep conflicting emotions at the same time genuine mm. acute pain from people yeah. leaving our church that these weren't just you know people that filled pews some of these were people that we'd known for 20 years that right. maybe I'd led to Jesus baptized married them maybe married their kids baptized their kids and now they're leaving mm. you know and saying ugly things about me that was mm. deeply painful at the same time the discoveries we're making about the kingdom yeah. of God, uh, about the true nature of this faith that we confess, was exhilarating. And I yes. was, in, in one sense, we were never more excited yes. to be a Christian. I know, I know we talk a lot about mm. deconstruction, and I heard your brilliant conversation with our good friend Brad Jerzak that was out not too long ago. And... Um, uh, I met Brad around that time, too. And so Brad okay. and our other friend, Joe Beach, they kind of walked with yeah. me. But um, I never thought of it as deconstruction. Now, I understand mm. that now that could be a term for sure. what I went through to be used. But for me, it was like, oh, well, I mean, there's a reason why I called my memoir Water to Wine. Mm-hmm. That, that I was at a party where the wine had run out. Yeah. There was, there, I thought the party's going to be over. But Jesus was there, and Jesus turned water to wine. Uh, so I never, I never had any personal struggle that what I was discovering was true and real. Mm-hmm. I just had to deal with the pain of people choosing to not come with me on this journey. So anyway, I, I probably took longer, and that, that's a little bit of my story. But I, I want our listeners to know yeah. uh, that I'm happy, that Perry and I are happy, mm. we're healed. Our church is in a very good place. Mm. Uh, it's about half the size it used to be, but it's mm. ten times better, <laughs> oh, in my awesome. humble opinion. I think that's it's a great awesome. church. So anyway, that's that's a backdrop of our story. That's uh, There's so many things that opens up and so many directions I want to go. But I have to ask you this, because I don't remember ever asking you quite this way before. What was it about the Camino that was so healing? Uh, what was it? I don't know. Um, when I We planned to walk the Camino four years before we did, so we would talk about it now and then. And if I was at some conference and would mention the Camino, then people that had walked it would come up to me and say things. Mm. 
And I noticed over a period of time, they all said the same three things in their own way. They, they told me really three things. Number one, it's harder than you think. Yeah. Number two, you'll love it. Number three, it will change you. Mm. I can't tell you how accurate that was. It's mm. harder than you think. Mm. No one walks that 500-mile walk and says it's easy. Mm. It's a strange thing. Anybody in about just if you have relative health, you can do it, yeah. but it's going to be hard. I remember meeting a guy that was just fresh out of the Marines. I mean, he was a, he was a specimen of physical fitness, but telling me, man, this is hard. Because walking 12 to 15 miles, it's just that it's every day, every day, every right. day, every day. So it's hard. But I loved it. Even when I had mm. blisters, even when my feet hurt, I still... I, I, your, your life is reduced to this wonderful simplicity. Mm. I mean, what do, you, what do you wear? You wear what's... You wear your clothes. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. have, you have two outfits. You, know, you, have, you have what you have on and you have a, a change in your pack. Yeah. So you walk, you eat, you sleep, and that's all you do. Yeah. And um, th- there is a mystical aspect about a prolonged period of time. And understand, mm-hmm. we're walking on a pilgrimage route. This isn't just you yeah. know. This isn't the Pacific Crest Trail. This is right. where for twelve hundred years people have walked this in faith. Yeah. And I don't understand the mystery of that all, but I was in that stream. And by the time we reached Santiago, 40 days, it took us 40 days. That's a nice biblical number, 40 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were healed mm-hmm. and we were okay. And um, I, don't, that's how, I don't know how to explain it. I wish I could. That, there is, I think, mm-hmm. a mystery to it. We're, yes. we're going back. I turned 60 this year. I, I, I am now 60. My life seems to have fallen fairly neatly in 15-year increments. Hmm. Zero to 15 is just learning, you know, learning to tie your shoes and multiplication tables and Magellan and whatever you learn. Um, 15 to 30 was beginnings. Okay, I began to follow Jesus. Perry and I got married when when I was 21, she was 20. We started a church when I was 22, and she was 21, huh. and had a baby at the same time. Wow. <laughs> so I became a, a Christian, a, a husband, a father, a pastor, mm. all during that period of time. It was beginnings. And then 30 to, to 45, that was achieving a lot of success, growth, mm. and and... In a certain way of thinking, that's I had reached the top. Yeah. But yeah. no, I was only halfway through. Hmm. And so 45 to 60 was kind of rethinking, reevaluating, hmm. moving into the second half of life and hmm. all of that sort of thing. Okay, now I feel like I've completed that journey. What next? 60 to 75. Hmm. What, what am I supposed to do? I don't know exactly. Hmm. I think what I'm supposed to do... If I can use this language, I, I feel like I want to try to become a true elder. Mm. I, I wanna, I'm going to continue to pastor. I'm going to continue to write. Yeah. But I want to do so from a deeper place of mm. contemplation mm. and compassion. We mm. live in a volatile time. Everybody knows that. Yes. And it's easy to, just to go through life being reactive. I yeah. would like to not do that. I would like to have something to say that's yes. not founded in anger or reaction. Yeah. In fact, I think, I think when we see the word elder in the New Testament, and these are those that, that lead our churches, uh, I think if you... Here's the problem with the concept of elder. In the American context, 
It mm-hmm. derives its idea from the business world. So this is the right. board of directors. So yeah, what do you yeah. do? You 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 pick some of the rich people in your church to be on yes. the board so that they'll give and maybe inspire others to do so. That's a bit crass for me to phrase it that way, but that happens. That's right. Um, I think if you translate elder in your mind as contemplative, mm. the church should be led by people who are non-reactive, that have lived long enough, maybe suffered mm. enough, that they have moved into a different stage of life. They tend to be maybe a little older, yeah. uh, but not necessarily so. And and getting and by the way, getting older doesn't guarantee that you're going to become contemplative at all. In fact, one of the right. one of the tragedies we behold right now is we're seeing an aging population that, because of certain choices of cable news, have have formed them deeply in reaction. So yeah, that's right. I don't want to make that mistake. Getting older has enough drawbacks. Mm. I want to hold on to that, which is, which is a positive. I want to try to yeah. become a true contemplative. So I'm going to go for mm. a long walk. I've got a. I'm just rambling here, but no, this is great, Ryan. I, I've got an idea. Well, let me talk about. You know, I've got postcards from Babylon, the yeah. Church in American Exile. That's out. It's been out since early this year. I have a book that will come out probably in December. Okay. Uh, entitled "The Unvarnished Jesus: A Lenten Journey." Do I, I don't know if I have a copy here. I don't see one sitting on my table. Um, it's it's forty six meditations hmm. to take the reader from Holy Sat from uh, Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. Each each is about three pages long, so it's okay. a meditation on the life of Jesus for Lenten reading, and that'll come out. And now I'm I'm going to go for this long walk. Be able to talk and pray, be with Perry. Yeah. And here's my idea. Uh, working title, What Can We Do When Everything is on Fire? Mm. Nietzsche, 1888. Mm. Nietzsche was a prophet, yeah. a kind of a mad prophet, maybe yeah. a Balaam, but, you know, he saw. Certainly. And he gives his parable of the madman. He writes this in 1888. And what happens is, is a... Um, a man, a madman, walks into a village on a bright, sunny morning, and he's carrying a lantern on a mm. bright, sunny day, and he's crying out, Where is God? Where is God? I can't find God. Where is God? And, of course, the villagers are laughing at him, making fun mm. of him. And then the madman says, Don't you realize that we can't find God, that God is absent? Mm. Don't you notice that? Don't you know that God is dead? Can't you smell that? That's, mm. that's God's corpse that is decaying for even the gods decay. This is Nietzsche. And the, the people are baffled. They're laughing. It doesn't make any sense. And then he says, oh, I see I've come too early. Mm. And then he smashes the lantern. Okay, this is Nietzsche recognizing that even though he was living at the tail end of Christendom, yeah that he was also living in a society that was done organizing itself around belief in God. Right. And he foresaw, if, if we mm. could have lunch with Nietzsche, which, I, which would be awesome, I would love that, because I agree with Nietzsche 80% of the time. Now, the 20% yeah. I disagree is important, but sure. 80% of the time, I really, I think he's, I think he's the most cogent critic of Christianity, and, and yes. at least Christian thinkers need to pay attention to him. Agreed. And... Uh, so he, he foresaw 
the death of God as the absence of God being the organized principle for Western civilization. He was not like these uh, Daniel Dennett and I can't think of all the names of these angry atheists, Sam Harris. Yeah. He's not gloating about it. Yeah. Uh, he, says, he, says, he says, we have sponged away the horizon. So we don't even know how are we going to organize ourselves now? Yeah. Uh, how are we, how are, how are we going to get our bearings? Once you remove the horizon, then you can develop vertigo, and you don't know what's up or down mm-hmm. or sideways. His hope was the Ubermensch, the Overman, mm-hmm. that the Nietzsche's, the Nazis uh, appropriated in a, a very horrendous way. But his fear was instead of the Overman, the Superman, we would have what he called the Last Man, who he mm-hmm. describes as sitting stupidly, blinking and saying, "We've invented happiness." Mm. And what he's really doing there, he doesn't know it, but he's describing what we would today call the modern couch potato. Yeah, that's Sitting right. there, you know, with his potato chips and his remote and his 700 channels, clicking, saying, we've invented happiness. Mm. Um, so, but here's the idea. Nietzsche has the madman smash that lantern. Mm. But it, it, that, was like, that was like Mrs. O'Leary's lantern that the cow kicked over that led to the Chicago fire. We now live mm. in a time... When, when everything's on fire around us. Yeah. The, the opening line of this book will be, once upon a time, people believed in God. Mm. And then I want to move into talking about being angry at people for becoming agnostic and atheist. Modern people for, being, for becoming atheist is like being mad at medieval people for dying of the plague. Wow, yeah. It's, it's, just, mm. it's just something that has befallen us. Right, right. And yet... Uh, I th- I have hope that I have some things to say. Yes. That I can maybe help some people who feel like their faith is in tatters. Yeah. Everything's on fire. Yeah. Is there any hope? I don't want to give away too much. I haven't written the darn thing yet. Yeah. But I have I have some ideas, some things I want to say. Mm. I'm going to give this away, but it's just because you know you're my friend. I, I at the very end of the book. I want to then go to the burning bush, mm. and I want to talk about, oh, but maybe everything is on fire. Maybe every bush is on fire mm. with the glory of God. Is there a way yes. that we can recover that? Yeah. Is there a way into what is called second naivete? Is there yeah. a way into realizing, wait a minute, God isn't absent, but in mm. fact, every tree, every bush, every mountain, every flower mm. is on fire with the glory of God. Mm. Is there a way that our religious consciousness can awaken to that reality? Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to write. Wow. And I feel like I feel like a, a long walk to think about that is is worth the effort. Mm. I love that, Brian. This is yeah. great. I love that you're. I love that you're writing this. I feel, and I feel like you're. You're the man to write it. It's inter- the angst that you describe. You know, it's so interesting because you've been on this journey for a while. But and I love the fact that even you know the last couple of years. Um, you know, of course, you've had the water to wine gatherings, which right. I've been honored to be able. Yeah, to Yeah, we're speak doing at, again this year, which I'm so so looking forward to. Yeah. But it's interesting, or you know, because I feel like so many so many people are on this kind of journey now. And that's one of the things I like most about that space is that um, there's not a sense of arrival. You know, you've got people who are very much still working these things out and they really are from all corners of Christian tradition. That's one of the things, Brian, I love about what's happening with you now. And again, I know you'd never claim this in some pretentious way, but it's interesting how people who even in an external way 
are not on this kind of journey are listening to your sermons and reading your books. Because I think everybody yeah. feels that restlessness. Everybody feels yeah. the shifting tides. And, uh, and I love that there's just space. And I mean, how often are you contacted at this point by faith leaders who are in some kind of a transition in terms of their own faith, but just don't know what to do with it or don't have anything to go to? Because I feel like that, I have that conversation every day. Yeah, once, once Water to Wine came out... Um, since then, it's been pretty close to every day. Mm. Um, typically, that book was read, I think, as I, I can't tell you who all read the book. I think it was read disproportionately by pastors, yes. or at least that's who reach out to me. Yeah, And they feel like I'm a safe place, safe person to talk to. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'll tell you how Water to Wine Gathering came about, is I just had so many people contacting me. And sometimes uh-huh. they would just want an encouragement, They maybe a phone conversation, maybe I'd sure. email them back. But a lot of them, a whole lot of them said, I'll come see you. I live in Dallas. Mm-hmm. I live in, you know, I live in Maine. I live in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, but I'll come see you. Yeah. Uh, I said, all right. And so, you know, they would fly out and we would spend half a day together. And I thought, well, I'm doing these all one at a time. Maybe yeah. we could get them all together at once. Yeah. And um, so it creates an interesting dynamic, the people that attend mm-hmm. Water to Wine. Because you mm-hmm. have some that are pretty much, half the crowd are almost done with the church. Yeah, that's and right. And half the crowd are pastors. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yes, that's true. Uh-huh. So, so that, that's an that's interesting tension. That yes. we have some that are pretty, that they're trying to hold on to Jesus, but they're pretty skeptical of the church. That's half of the attendees. That's the other right. half are pastors. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that, that book resonated with a lot of pastors. And so I hear from them mm-hmm. regularly. And I, I really, I do, I want to help them. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're alone and they're afraid and right. they're losing their jobs. And Absolutely. My story, my story you know, that I tell in Water to Wine and I just kind of alluded to, it's, it's unique in that you have to remember that I was, um, I'm the founding pastor yes. of a non- non-denominational church, which what does that mean? It meant that I could at least try to move my church yeah. to a new place. Yeah. I wasn't going to get fired. A bishop mm-hmm. wasn't going to come in and, you know, j- jerk me out. Uh, uh, something went, hold on a second, I've got music playing in my ear all of a sudden. <laughs> Well, was, I thought that might be the Holy um, Spirit. I like that. You know, I don't know what's. You never know how God might get involved with this scoring. There, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that 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 song that just I don't know what happened. It just started up. That's a song called. Um, uh, the word Babylon is in it. It's it, this artist in England read postcards from Babylon and wrote it. And it's going to come out on a new album. I don't remember the name of the artist yet. Oh wow! But he sent it to me, and I I get a lot of that. And yeah, sometimes yeah. it's not that they're not that good. This song's really good. Oh, okay, that's so, great. so so the, the, wrap that up. But the point is, I at least had the option of trying. Now I yeah. could have failed. I mean, the church could yeah. have reached the point where it was maybe you know no longer financially viable or whatever. Right. Uh, that didn't happen. We made it, but but I had that. But not every pastor's in that situation. Right. And I'm sympathetic to the fact that, okay, you know, it's easy for someone to sit on the sidelines and say, well, then no, they should just tell all the truth that they know every Sunday, yeah. no matter what, come hell or high water. Well, you know, they also have a mortgage and they have kids, right. you know, and, and this is their job. And uh, 
so they're under a lot of pressure. So, yeah. and then I've had some. This is this is almost teasing. I shouldn't do this. I've had some really well known, kind of high profile pastors that read the book and they communicate with me quietly. Yeah, they, they like Nicodemus I, coming to Jesus yeah, tonight. Yeah, there, well, there are, there are so, there, I say there are some pastors out there that read my stuff like like porn or something. They right. they don't want anybody to know they're reading. They hide it, you know. Yes. But but. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, uh, if I can help whoever on this journey, because it's not it's 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 a hard time to be a pastor. It's a hard time. To that be a pastor. that may sound very self indulgent yeah. to say no, that, it's true. but look, I've been doing this for thirty eight years. In fact, I, I said something to Jonathan Merritt just the other day. Mm. I said, "Look, I've raised three sons. I have three adult sons, and now seven grandchildren." Pastoring a church is harder than raising kids. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> At least that's that was our mm. experience, and, and mm-hmm. you know we had plenty of challenges raising kids as mm-hmm. as one does, but pastoring a church is harder than that.